book of Judges. We're going to be starting a new series tonight there in the book of Judges. It's Old Testament. Sorry about that. Old Testament. Just after the book of Joshua. Just just after the book of Deuteronomy. I won't keep going. It's uh, Look at your table of contents if you need to find it. Um, I wanted to begin just by pointing out Uh, something that I think you all probably know already, but it's the idea that half-hearted devotion to anything in life will typically result in disappointment. I think we're all familiar with some sort of situation or some person where we have seen half-hearted devotion and commitment play itself out. Maybe, Maybe it's a sibling or it's a friend's Maybe it was an athlete that you played with in high school. Maybe it's an athlete, a professional athlete that you have followed. I Personally, I grew up playing soccer, and so that means I liked watching soccer. Every four years, I enjoyed watching the World Cup. And when I was a kid, like when I was growing up playing soccer, I was always intrigued by the absolute dominance of Brazil, right? When I was a kid, like really young, Brazil was absolutely dominant. They had players like the OG Ronaldo, like the, the original Ronaldo, not Cristiano. I know he's very pretty and he's very good, but he's, he's not the OG Ronaldo. Ronaldo was one of the best strikers to ever play the game. They also had uh, a left-footed midfielder named Roberto Carlos, who could bend the ball better than Beckham, and he was very, very talented. But my favorite player growing up from the Brazilian national team was a player named Ronaldinho. He was a center midfielder, and he was probably, he's probably the most talented player, just naturally talented player to play. One of the most naturally talented players to ever play the game. He he probably has more natural talent than the entire U.S. national team combined. Let me just put it that way. Um, You know, we talk about Steph Curry and James Harden and their ability to break ankles and to juke, right? But... In my humble opinion, they pale in comparison to Ronaldinho's ability to buckle knees. So, here's the deal though. By all accounts, Ronaldinho had a half-hearted commitment to soccer. All of his teammates said this. All of his coaches said this. If he ever did show up for a practice, he would typically arrive late. And he would just show up and mess around. Just like juggle and like play pranks on other players. He would party late into the night on a daily basis, which means he would often miss practice. And when he would show up to games, sometimes he would come to the game hungover. He failed to stay in shape. He failed to commit himself to discipline. He failed to remain consistent. By all accounts, one of the greatest soccer players to ever play was a half-hearted player. If he had the devotion of Cristiano Ronaldo or Tom Brady or Kobe Bryant, Ronaldinho could have been the best player to ever play the game. And yet, his half-hearted devotion left all of us wanting. This is actually similar to what we find when we look to the people of Israel. This is a people whom God had chosen to function as his light to the nations. This was a people uniquely blessed by the sovereign king of heaven. And yet their half-hearted devotion to God proved to be their downfall. Their lack of faith, their lack of commitment, it always turned into their ruin. 
They had everything going for them except themselves. And there are few places in Scripture that capture the downfall of Israel better than the book of Judges. So as we start this new study in Judges, we will see the decline of Israel taking place before our eyes. And my hope is that as we study this book, we will come to understand the the destructive nature of committing to God in a half-hearted sort of sense. That's not the only benefit from reading this book, right? Israel is a horrible example for us to see here in this text. However, we can also come to better understand ourselves and our understanding for our need of Christ. The truth is, apart from the gospel and apart from Christ, we would be the same, in the same exact situation as every single individual that we read here in our text. So with that said, I hope that we will begin to understand our need for Christ in a much greater sense as a result of studying this book. I hope that after every night of our study over the next couple of months, we will leave desiring Christ more and recognizing our need for him more. So with that said, I want to begin our study in Judges by briefly looking at Israel's history prior to this point. Where have we been? I think this survey is going to help us better understand what's going on in the book once we get there. So let's actually begin with Genesis, with the the man named Abraham. Abraham is the father to Israel. He was called by God to become a great nation. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons, hence the 12 tribes of Israel. And then these sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery. So get this, out of jealousy, they sell their brother into slavery. And so from the very outset, the people of, in, of Israel had a tendency towards evil. They had a tendency towards rebellion. So much so that they were willing to sell their own brother into slavery. But I think you know the story probably from this point. Joseph shows up in Egypt as a slave, eventually becomes Pharaoh's right-handed man, right-hand man. I don't know if he was right-handed. Uh, it turns out that there is a major famine in the land, and because Joseph is wise, he is able to create this, uh, this uh, system of, of taxing that essentially saves the entire ancient Near East, and he eventually saves his own family as they come and find refuge in Egypt with Joseph. So this brings all of Israel's sons to Egypt, and they remain there for hundreds of years. And after Joseph's death, they become slaves, and they begin to suffer. Which leads God to appoint a man named Moses to lead Israel. Again, you know the story. Moses leads Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. From there, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, they begin to wander in the wilderness as they make their headway towards the land of Canaan, the promised land. But it turns out that they remain in the wilderness for 40 years. God saved them from Egypt to bring them into the wilderness for 40 years. Not really. God didn't bring them 
out of Egypt to the wilderness to just stay there for 40 years. The reason they remained there is because they were disobedient. Israel's disobedience was so substantial through their time in the wilderness that God decided to prevent that entire generation from ever entering into the promised land. And so he prescribed that the entire nation would remain in the wilderness until that generation died off. Sure enough, after that generation dies off, including Moses himself, a new leader takes the reign and his name is Joshua. He takes the mantle of leadership after Moses passes and he brings this next generation of Israelites into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Joshua is uh, the one who leads this effort. And under his leadership, the people of God experience blessing and success. He's a godly man. He does not have a half-hearted devotion to God. And because of that, the people of Israel benefit. But this leads us to the book of Judges. You see, the book of Judges is the next piece of historical uh, uh, writings that we have that follow Joshua. The book of Judges is about Israel moving forward after Joshua passes. So how are they going to respond? They have a track record of benefiting from all of God's blessings only to later turn away from him in rebellion. Is that what is going to happen again? Simple answer is yes. The book of Judges is a picture of Israel running straight back into their rebellion after they have been rescued out of Egypt, after they have been rescued from the wilderness and brought into the promised land. So that's the history of Israel. And with all of that said, let's continue our introduction by looking at some of the major themes that we are going to see in this book. I think this will be really helpful for us as we try to understand what's actually going on in the book of Judges. So first off, it's, it's the idea that the Israelites were abandoning the ways of the Lord. The book of Judges, Judges provides us with insights into what happens when the people of God decide to abandon God's ways and pursue what they want. They pursue what seems right in their own eyes. So as we look at this book, we're going to see over and over again these two simple phrases that kind of direct the course of the text. Here are the two phrases. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The theme here is that the people of Israel are turning from God and they are turning to their own devices. They're turning from the things of God to the desires of man. Look at the number of times these phrases come up. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. 
over and over again, we see that the Israelites are turning from God's ways. They're turning from what, what is uh, good in God's sight and they're doing what is evil in his sight. But what's interesting is we don't see that phrase come up again after chapter 10. Instead, after chapter 10, we see a new phrase start to show up. This is chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 21, verse 25, very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they don't do what's right in God's eyes. Instead, now they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Do you see this transition that's like taking place right before our eyes here throughout the course of this book? The people are turning away from God and they are turning to idols. Notice, notice the slow fade that we see here. First, they're turning from God and serving Baal. Then they're serving Baal and the Asherah. Then they're serving Baal and the Asherah and the gods of, uh, of the Syrians and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. Right? It's, it's as though with the progression, things are getting worse and worse. And soon enough, they aren't even ca- concerned with what God deems right in his eyes. Instead, all they want to do is pursue what they deem to be right. So with that said, now we're going to see a portrait of what happens when a society abandons God's ways for their own ways. This leads to our next theme. It's the cycles of judges. The next theme that I want to point out, it's related to the structure of the book. Throughout the book, there's this constant cycle going on. It's good literature, right? And we need to pay attention to the the literature itself in order to understand the point of the book. The cycle goes something like this. The people of God fall into sin. The nations around them begin to overcome them as a form of God's judgment. As a result, the people of God begin to cry out to God, asking him to help them. God graciously rescues his people through the judges. Turn to chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, because here we have a portrait of this. Here, this entire cycle is explained. And this is a cycle that we're just going to see over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. So verse 16 in chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
So the significance of this passage can't be overlooked, right? This is basically our key for understanding the entire book. We're going to see this cycle going on over and over again. The people of God have this remarkable tendency to cry out to God when things are going horribly wrong, experiencing the goodness of God, and then forgetting it shortly thereafter. They face difficulty, they cry out to God, they experience God's deliverance through a judge, they fall back into sin, the cycle repeats itself. So let me point out that Israel is a negative example for us in this book. Right? You don't go to the book of Judges in order to find a bunch of positive examples for how to conduct your life. It's quite the opposite. Israel represents a negative example. So we must avoid the tendency that we see here within the hearts of the Israelites. We need to avoid that tendency of looking to God when and only when it is our last resort. Because that's their tendency. And yet, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all find ourselves resonated with with that very thing. How many of you have experienced this this same exact cycle in your own life? You have a steady back and forth between obedience and some sort of moral failure. You have this steady back and forth between, between faithfulness and then abandoning God for your own vices. We all tend to do this, right? We forget about... God when things are going smoothly, but once things become difficult, where do we look to besides him? We all do this to some degree. We all grow comfortable when everything seems to be going our way. And that leads to spiritual apathy. It leads to disobedience. And when we trail down that pathway towards apathy and disobedience, we find ourselves in trouble. Along comes the judge. The judges come to rescue God's people when they go through that same cycle that we often find ourselves in. So let's look at this theme, the theme of the judges. We need to look at this very concept. Who are these men and one woman? What are they intended to do? What, what was their purpose? Well, the, the judges, they functioned as deliverers. The word here it's kind of confusing because here it doesn't refer to like a judge in a courtroom, right? Who's, who's laying down the law. In Hebrew, the term judge can mean a, a judge in a courtroom, but it can also mean a deliverer. And that's really the way the word is, is being used here. So like I said, these men and this woman who delivered the people of Israel from their enemies, uh, that was their intended purpose. But this is an important point. They were known for their God-given ability to deliver the people from their physical enemies. But they failed to do much more than that. Daniel Block, he writes about this very issue. Here's what he says. The involvement of the respective judges in the religious affairs of the nation is telling. Although they all served actively as Yahweh's agents of deliverance from foreign enemies... Not one of them had the moral or spiritual constitution to launch a crusade against the enemy within, to denounce the idolatry of the nation, or to call the people back to Yahweh. They were helpful in their aiding of the people to fight against their nations. However, they did not offer any help when it came to fighting the internal enemies, the enemies of the heart, the enemies of idolatry. 
They failed to bring about spiritual revitalization in the nation of Israel. We cannot miss this when we open up the book. I'm I'm telling you, we'll see it over and over again. A lot of people go to the book of Judges to find examples. Hey, look at this godly judge. I'm going to follow him. That's not the way we ought to be reading this book. Think of just some, we'll see, we'll see. You got like Samson just sleeping with all the Philistine women over and over and over again. Like, is that the kind of guy you want to imitate? No. Well, Samson's just one of many judges that we're going to read about. Here's the deal. This is the final theme that I want to look at. It's the idea that in Israel there was no king. The judges were leaders within the the nation of Israel. However, they were not kings. They weren't adequate leaders. Israel had no king at this point. We're bridging the gap between Joshua and Saul and David, really. That's where the book of Judges finds itself historically. So notice this. We see this this theme come up over and over again. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, so on and so forth. Chapter 21, verse 25. Again, last verse in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So clearly, the author of the book of Judges is trying to to communicate a point. Israel's in need of a king. So it bridges the gap. It prepares the way for the book of Samuel where David is introduced. But there's something a lot deeper going on here, right? This book isn't just meant to to prepare the way for David. Here's the deal. At this point, Israel was supposed to serve God as their king. Israel was supposed to serve God as their king. They were supposed to serve God and, and follow his intended plan for their lives. Instead, they did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. They proved they could not live a godly life with a king they could not see. And so, when we get to the book of Samuel, they begin to ask for a king that they can see. They ask for a king that looks good in their own eyes. It doesn't turn out so well. So let's not forget the fact that even when they got that king, Saul and then David, it did not solve the problem within. Getting a king whom they could see did not solve the heart issue that all of the Israelites faced. You see, the book of Judges has this great ability of helping us see our need for Christ. They do what's right in their own eyes, it doesn't work. They get a king who's going to rule over them. That doesn't work either. We're left hopeless. If we're just looking to to our own devices, if we're just looking to the rulers of this age, we will be left without hope because our only hope is Christ. And so my goal throughout the course of this this study in, in Judges is to help you become more and more prone to recognize your deep-seated need for Jesus because he's the only king who will actually solve the issues going on within your heart. Now, with all that said, let's look at the book of Judges, chapter 1. I want to spend the rest of our night looking at the, the start of the first cycle. Like I said, the book is just cycle after cycle, diving into sin, being rescued by God through a judge. Well, 
here is the start of our first cycle. Clear message is that there are consequences for a lack of holistic obedience. We see here a number of hints in chapter 1 that Israel is practicing half-hearted obedience. But I need to point this out, that we have to pay attention in order to see this. When you read through some of these uh, pages, you're going to see some sort of instances where, where you're not quite sure. Is this okay? Was that sin? Was that wrong? Was, was that all right? Here's the deal. The author, again, very good at writing literature, he offers us hints, subtle hints. And as we begin to read further and further, we'll see those little hints turn into bright, flashing road signs that are telling us exactly what is going on, signifying the nation's rebellion. So we begin looking at this trajectory with Judah's example in chapter 1. We see this begin in the first three verses of the book. Look what we read, chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So this tribe is supposed to go and, and fight against the Canaanites because God has given them victory, this specific tribe. Verse 3, And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Okay, so before I even jump into the details here, I do want to point out that this, this mission that God has the Canaanite or the, the Israelites on, it is it's kind of hard to swallow for modern Americans. Right? A lot of people in our society, they'll look at this idea of the Israelites going into the land of Canaan in order to fight against the Canaanites. Um, they'll look at this and kind of term it as some sort of God-ordained genocide. Like, what's going on here? Is this, is this some sort of God-ordained genocide? Is that the case, though? Is that actually what's going on here? My argument is No don't think that's really what's going on here and there's a number of different reasons for that. I'm not going to go into all of the specific reasons. I don't think that's the case. But here's what I will say. God planned to use the nation of Israel to judge notoriously wicked societies in the ancient Near East. There's no debate here. These cities, historically speaking, were filled with people that were remarkably evil. Child sacrifices, occult practices, rampant, disgusting immorality were the norm for these societies. This isn't debatable. There's all sorts of historical records that these, these uh, different communities that the Israelites found in the land of Canaan were wretched. And this evidence is, is scattered throughout the ancient Near East and all sorts of archaeological evidence. That's where I'm going to leave this for now. There's, there's more than that. But here's the deal. God has the right to judge such nations. God has the right to do so. 
and he decided in his sovereignty to use the nation of Israel to do that. And what we'll see, in fact, is that later in Israel's history, God uses other nations to judge Israel for their rampant wickedness. God, however, does not call his people to do this today. And this we have to point out, obviously. God is not calling the church to to function as his judgment sword in the world today. That's why the the, uh, crusades in the Middle Ages were evil. They were wicked. God was not calling the, the, the Catholic Church to go and do that. God has decreed that he will now instead use his people in order to proclaim a way of escaping God's judgment. That's what God has intended the church to do. So instead of being the sword that God wields against other nations in an act of judgment, now the church has been, has been given the duty to proclaim the gospel to nations so that, that nations might find refuge when God's judgment comes on the last day. If you have any questions about these sorts of things, I, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, but for now, let's just continue in our passage because there's actually a lot here that we, we don't want to miss. Back to the story. Judah is called to go to battle. Judah responds by bringing the tribe of Simeon along. So do you see the hint here? Do you see the hint of disobedience? It's not very obvious, but when you begin to pay attention to the passage, you start to see there's something that's off here. Might not look like that big of a deal, but God told Judah that Judah could take uh, the, the, the land of Canaan and he would give the, this tribe victory. How does Judah respond? By seeking help from another tribe. In the next two verses, though, here's the thing. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. After all, God, God gives Judah and Simeon success in their battle. Get to verse 4. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hand. So, it seems as though this isn't that big of a deal. Maybe there's a hint of disobedience here, but, you know, God still gives them victory. Well, as we keep reading, we continue to see that God continues to give Israel success. Specifically, he continues to give Judah success as they spread throughout the land of Canaan. It continues throughout the first chapter. When we get all the way to verse 18, we hear about all the different victories that the the tribe of Judah had in uh, the land of Canaan as they were driving out the inhabitants before them. They have success in conquering Jerusalem and Hebron and and Zephath and Gaza and Eshkelon and Ekron. Just one tribe after another uh, or one small city after another they are conquering. Yet notice what we begin to see in verse 19. Verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. So what do we make of this? What's actually going on here? Again, this is just another hint. The author of of the book is, is hinting There's something going on here that we can't miss. This is actually a precursor to everything that we're about to read in the rest of chapter 1. Israel's success is drying up. 
And I would argue that if we're going to read the book of Judges well, we need to understand that their lack of, of success is directly related to their disobedience. Their disobedience was subtle, and it led to their subtle failure. They couldn't remove all of the Canaanites from the land. By and large, they obeyed God. They went into the land as God told them to do so. However, they decided to bring another tribe with them in order to give them aid. The result, they drive out most of the land's inhabitants. By and large, again, it's successful. However, there's these few inhabitants left in the plain because they had chariots. So because they're depending on their own devices, they are left depending on themselves to drive out their enemies with their own devices. When they are not uh, holistically obedient, we realize they are not holistically successful. This lines up with what we just read from chapter two. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Here it's, it's very clear. Their subtle disobedience led to their, their seemingly subtle failure. But let's look at the other tribes. From here on out, the author begins to zoom out. He spent all this time kind of narrowing in on on Judah, but now he backs up and he looks at what is happening in all of the other tribes as they go on throughout the land in order to conquer the land. We see this throughout the rest of the chapter. Chapter uh, 1, verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or, or Tanakh or its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor or its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium or its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Notice this detail. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So even when they got strong and had the ability to drive them out, they chose not to. Again, the subtle hints are becoming more and more obvious. This is not right. They should have driven them out. That was the the plan that God had given them. This tendency continues. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. There's a clear case being made here. Israel is not fulfilling their duty. Their mission was to remove the Canaanites, and yet here we see one after one, tribe after tribe, they are failing to follow through with what God had given them to do. Even when they were able to conquer, they still decided to not follow through with what God had called them to do. We see the same thing in verse 35. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Horez. 
in Ajalon and in Shabalam or, or Shalbim. But the hands of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them. In other words, the, the, the land of jo- or the people of Joseph had the ability to drive out uh, the Amorites. Instead, they became subject to forced labor. The point being made here is simple. The tribes of Israel are not obeying the Lord wholeheartedly. And so God does not call us to this sort of commitment that is half-hearted. It's, it's non-committal. And I think a lot of us here, we probably recognize in our own hearts a tendency to, to one foot in and one foot out type of Christianity. Right? We probably recognize that going on in our own hearts, this half-hearted commitment to God. It's certainly a problem that every single one of us faces, is it not? Do you not feel this tug in your own heart? We all fall victim to the attitude to, to, of half-hearted commitment. And yet, I don't want to spend a ton of time pointing out all of the different ways in which we are like Ronaldinho and like the Israelites and like the Judites. I don't need to convince you that you are like them in ways. Instead, here's what I want to point out. I want us to think about the fact that Israel could not experience the promised land the way it was intended to be experienced because of their subtle disobedience. It was subtle at first, right? Judah's disobedience at first seemed subtle. And because of that, sure, they got into the land of Canaan, but they did not experience it as it was intended to be experienced. It was not paradise. In fact, the moment they brought their disobedient hearts into the land, paradise ceased in the land of Canaan. There were enemies there. There was conflict there. There was struggle there. So let me point something out that all of us need to hear. It's the fact that our subtle disobedience, every one of our our acts of subtle disobedience will prevent us from entering into God's promised land, into his eternal promised land, into his eternal presence. You see, at our very best, we're just like Judah. At our very best, we're just like the Israelites. We subtly ignore God and, and we do what we want to do. Even on, in the most subtle acts of disobedience, the, the issue is, is even they will, will prevent us from entering into God's presence. Which leads us to the person and work of Christ, who had a holistic heart of commitment to the Lord. Jesus was holistically obedient to the law in every single way, shape, and form. And therefore, he does have access in order to enter into God's promised land. He's the only one with access to enter into God's promised land and to experience all the benefits of the presence of God. And so I ask, where are you placing your hope? Where where do you place your hope? Are you placing your hope in your own heart, your half-obedient, half-hearted heart? Or are you placing your hope in Christ? Because if you place your hope in Christ, you will be granted access into the promised land and you will actually be able to experience all of the benefits therein. You see, because we are just like 
the Israelites. Our only claim to the promised land is Christ. So as we spend the next couple of months going through the book of Judges, I I hope that we will become more and more aware of our own tendencies to walk in disobedience apart from the grace of God. And I hope that through this experience, we will learn to look to Christ all the more. Let's pray.